telling me, as I mentioned that we were in the book of Revelation, and they had some rather interesting views on the book. Nevertheless, they ended up telling me how they had um, had a vision of the Lord and what He looked like, and that's fine. And I started thinking, you know, a lot of people have talked about, oh, you know what, I was transported into heaven and I saw Jesus and we went skipping through fields of daisies together and what have you. Uh, a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. You know, and... Today we're going to see a picture of the Lord and it is not one of Jesus skipping through fields of daisies. It is a vision of Jesus that is so glorious and so perfect and so exalting and so honoring and so magnifying that we should do like John ended up doing when he saw the vision of the Lord and who fell at his feet like a dead man. It's interesting because everybody I hear about who says that they've had a vision or seen Christ it is always something that is pleasant and wonderful and nice, and yet whenever we see somebody in the Bible who gets a vision of the Lord, they fall down and say, Woe is me, I'm the dead man. And so, we need to recall as we consider this passage of text that the book of Revelation is just that. It is an unveiling. Revelation is an unveiling. It shows things the way they really are. And we live in a world that we look at this world and we see the turmoil, we see the difficulties, we see the struggles, we see certain things. And John in his day was also seeing the Roman Empire as powerful and strong and having authority over life and death. But in the revelation of Jesus Christ, what he sees is he sees things as they really are and that Caesar really has no power, but Jesus Christ is Lord of all. It is an unveiling. It is to show us the way things really are. And throughout redemptive history, we have seen Jesus revealed in His humiliation. And what I mean by that is we see, we've seen Jesus in His humbleness. Probably best defined in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, And have this attitude among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not consider um, equality with God a thing to be held on to, but humbled himself as a man, pouring out himself and taking on the nature of man. Even to the point of death. That's the humiliation of Christ. The second person of the Trinity, glorious, eternal, uh, majestic, stepping down into human history, pouring himself into a babe in Bethlehem and being, being, becoming dependent upon mankind even for his own food and shelter. Growing and learning, being mocked and beaten and spit upon, being called a demon, And dying on a cross, much of the New Testament deals with that aspect of Jesus Christ, his humiliation. This is the Jesus that John knew. John writes in his 
epistle, this first epistle, it says, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched and looked upon. It's time to, and I was with Christ in his humanity. I touched him. I walked with him. I ate with him. I saw the things he did. I laughed with him. I wept with him. I was rebuked and chastised by him. That's the Jesus I know. I even saw him in his resurrected body. I was there. I was an eyewitness. But the vision that John is going to see of Jesus isn't like any of that. It's not what we saw. It's not what we touched. We're going to see Jesus as he really is. I saw him veiled. I saw him veiled in humanity. I was up on the mountain and for a brief moment I saw that humanity peeled back and I got a glimpse of the glorious nature, true nature of Jesus Christ. It was a brief glimpse. Then Peter interrupted with some stupid comment about building tabernacles. God rebuked him and it was over. John is going to see Jesus today and he's going to describe Jesus in ways that are amazing. It's going to be important as we set the context of the book of Revelation because we need to remember who this Jesus is. And so, one of the themes, or one of the sub-themes at least, of the book of Revelation is this idea of endurance and perseverance. And if we are to persevere in this life, if we are to remain faithful to the things of God in the midst of a culture that scorns the word of Christ, that diminishes and mocks the people of God, who tempts us with temptations beyond compare, if we are to remain faithful to the word of Christ and endure for the sake of Christ, we are going to need to have a glimpse of an almighty risen Jesus like you've never had before. The days are getting darker and the trials are going to get harder and Jesus is going to have to get bigger. And John is going to set forth for us a picture of Christ in such a way that the people who are reading this book, the original readers who are suffering persecution and dealing with, with temptation and dealing with abandoning the Lord for the sake of safety, he's going to set forth for them a Jesus who is Lord of all, worthy to be followed, worthy to be obeyed, even if it means tribulation. We need the same. Let's read our text together. Join with me as I read in verses 9 through, the verse, through verse 20 as we consider <clears throat> what John has to show for us. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of the Lord, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like 
white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We begin with John saying, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. We see this threefold treasure that John describes fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and endurance. I, John, a partner in your tribulation. John is writing to them as a brother. John is writing to them as an equal, which is amazing because of all the people alive, of all the believers alive in that day, John was certainly pre, a preeminent Christian in that day. All of the disciples were dead. John was elderly, and highly regarded in the Christian community. He could have walked into any church and everybody would have just given him honor and respect and allowed him of the pulpit, allowed him to speak, pretty much would have given up everything for John. I don't know that we would have an equivalent today, but I would assume at least in most Baptist churches, Billy Graham walked in and said, can I say a few words from the pulpit, everybody would bet, say, absolutely, you can say a few words from the pulpit. <laughs> but John writes, not as the exalted apostle, but as your fellow brother, and a partaker in the tribulation. John knows what it is to suffer for the cause of Christ. Tradition has that he lived a very difficult life, tortured and beaten and abused for the sake of the gospel. And now we see him in a Roman penal colony, the island of Patmos, exiled. Whatever his status was in the church, he is writing as a fellow brother and follower of Christ. He says that I am a fellow partaker of the tribulation. This idea of tribulation carries a, a lot of baggage with it. Oftentimes when we think of tribulation, we might think of the great tribulation, which the Bible speaks of as a, a time that precedes the second coming of Christ, a time that is of great darkness and difficulty, a time of great trial, a time that Bible speaks of the Great Tribulation. It speaks rarely of the Great Tribulation, but it speaks often about tribulation. The Great Tribulation is something that is coming, but that's not what John's talking about here. He says, I'm a partner in tribulation. In other words, I am a co-equal partner um, 
in the trauma and the distress that is common to all believers. Sometimes we are told that if you become a believer, that your life will become perfect and nice and smooth sailing, and everything will go really nice and, and wonderful. I have yet to meet that person. I think those who say it are lying. Most of them are just trying to get your money out of you. Because there is trauma and distress that all of us go through. And it may not be so much persecution as John was going through or as these uh, churches were, were suffering at the, at the hands of Domitian. It could just be, you know what, we have trial. Loved ones die. Jobs get lost. Accidents happen. Those types of things. John is saying, I'm your fellow brother. Your fellow partaker of these things. Now the tribulation that he was going through was certainly a persecution for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he tells us, I was on the island of Patmos, which is a, like I said, a Roman penal colony. Roman penal colony. He says, I was on this island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And because I would not compromise, I continued to preach the word of God. I shared my faith. And Rome came down hard. They tried to kill me. Unable to do so, they put me on this island out in the middle of nowhere. And so here I am, because of the word of Christ. We all end up going through some sort of trial and difficulty because of trying to remain true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is what Jesus says in John chapter 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you. So that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In this world you have tribulation, Jesus says, but take courage. I've overcome the world. John says, I'm a partner with you in tribulation. And the kingdom. A partner in the kingdom. This seems interesting. Earlier, last week, we said that John says that we are, that God has made us a kingdom, a partner in the kingdom. How could that be if we're under tribulation? How can we be kings and priests and in a kingdom? This is a veiled but accurate view, folks. This is the way things really are. Outside may be difficulty. Outside may be trial. Outside may be tribulation. Domitian may be coming down hard on you, taking your homes. But the way things really are is that you are a kingdom and Jesus is the king. You may not see it yet. And present trials can blur that truth. You may not be able to see it because of all that you're going through. But I want you to understand something. That the true king and the true kingdom, you are part of that true kingdom. See, John wants them to see things the way they really are. The way it is, this tribulation, the way things really are, is you are a kingdom. And you have a great king. And John's going to eventually, very soon, describe the true king. And a partner in endurance.
Tribulation can obscure this kingdom reality and we need to endure. In fact, endurance is going to be a big theme in these letters to the seven churches. Endurance is a big theme in the book of Revelation. It will be a common call to the churches. Endure, 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 persevere, persevere, persevere. If I have a message for you today, one of those things that I would say to you is endure, 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 persevere, persevere, persevere. Being part of the kingdom, being an heir of Christ, being adopted as a child of God is worth it. It is worth everything. There is no shame that the world can cast upon you that is worth abandoning your faith in Christ. There is no trial or temptation or thing in this world. No temporary pleasure that is worth abandoning the glory of Christ. And they are going to come across very powerfully and very strong. In fact, when we read in these seven churches, we're going to see this idea of endurance and perseverance. And we're going to see that it, it comes from two basic sources. It's going to come to them, the need for endurance and the need for perseverance is going to come from two basic sources. False teaching and, pers and, and persecution that will compromise loyalty. So two things. False teaching. This false teaching is going to really highlight idolatry and sensuality. Follow other gods and have and be promiscuous. That's basically going to be the false teaching. Satisfy your own lustful desires. It doesn't it's actually a good, holy, God-pleasing thing. And false teaching in regards to idols, other gods, these are things that are going to require perseverance and endurance. And they also, you're going to need perse perseverance and endurance because there are external threats. And these threats will, will threaten your personal safety. We're going to see this all the way through the book of Revelation. Where does the, where does the sea beast come up from? Well, it comes up from the sea. And what does he do? He persecutes. That's what he does. And then after we see the beast from the, the sea, what do we see? The beast come up from the land. Another beast. And what does he do? He flatters with convincing words for people to follow after this smooth religious teaching. Two threats. Physical and false teaching. This is what John is saying. Listen, do not abandon your faith. Do not turn from the gospel that saves. This is imperative today as it was in the first century for us to maintain our, our solid foundation which is in Jesus Christ. I think, as I said last week, is in the world the closets have become emptied. 
as every wickedness of man is displayed before us and believed and endorsed and glorified and with the closets open now the world will shove us in I saw yesterday on the news you probably saw some new things that came out saying that she's gay and the person the commentator said, oh, she made such a bold stand. Listen, that's not a bold stand anymore. I'll tell you what's a bold stand nowadays, is to get up in the public square and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I believe the Bible, and I'm going to live for it, and I'm going to stand for it. That's a bold statement nowadays. 20 years ago, maybe not. 20 years ago, maybe that hers was a... A risky statement. It is not a risky statement anymore, but I'll tell you to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. That's a bold statement. That's what John wants us to do. That's what the book of Revelation is calling us to do. To stand and make a bold statement that the way things really are, that I stand for Christ and He is the victor, that He is the Lord and that He is the King, and you can do nothing to me. You can take this body if you will. And then I go and I will be with the Lord of glory forever and ever. Because that's the way things really are. And so John is on this island and he says, I, John, I'm with you in all of these things. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is actually a key phrase in the book of Revelation. There's this stated four times in the book. Some people, some commentators actually structure the whole book after these four key phrases, after these four statements. I was in the Spirit. It is a vision, the book of Revelation is a vision that is sourced in the Holy Spirit. In other words, what we are about to read as we go through this book are not the musings of some deranged or demented old man. John could be in his, was probably in his 90s by this time, but these are not the rantings of some old man with dementia. These are the words that have come forth from the Holy Spirit. And we would do well to hear them. These are the authoritative Word of God, not just the writings of some guy lonely on an island somewhere. And he says, I heard, and it was a voice like a trumpet. There's no mistake in why John wrote that. I told you that this is an authoritative book, and we read... And remember, the book of Revelation is the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. I know I mentioned this on a Wednesday night, but one of my favorite authors who has written a massive commentary on this book of Revelation would hold that every single verse has some Old Testament allusion to it. Every single verse. And this one definitely has Old Testament allusions. We read in Exodus chapter 19, 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning and flashes and thick clouds upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And then in verses 19 and 20. 
When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down onto Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is talking about when the Lord's going up to Moses, or going up to Mount Sinai to meet God, and God's voice was a trumpet. God descending as a trumpet. John is saying, I'm in the Spirit. I'm not making this up. This is the authoritative word of God. It was the sound of a trumpet. This is God descending. So we read this book, we would do well to understand its origin and its source. This comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It is God descending and speaking forth and revealing and making known to His people His truth. And then John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, which is very interesting. Remember I told you in our very first week that one of the um, things we will do, and I think I demonstrated it exegetically, or I used Scripture to, to... prove my point, and that is I will take everything in this book symbolically unless it is necessary to take it literally. I know that's opposite of what probably 99 all of us have been taught. But it is clear from verse 1, you can go back and, well, no, you can't go back and listen to it. It is clear from verse 1 that this is a symbolic book. We take it symbolically. How do we know we take it? Well, here's one clue. I turn to see a voice. You don't turn to see a voice. Nobody sees a voice. You turn to hear a voice. John turns and sees a voice. And what does this voice look like? And he says, I'm going to tell you what I saw. And he's going to use... And he's going to describe Jesus in some really magnificent ways. But before we see the speaker, it's interesting that we see the location of the speaker before we see the speaker himself. I think this is important for us. Before John describes the the glorious Lord, he says, I turned and I saw the voice. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the golden lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. So we see in the midst of seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Basically, let me just jump ahead. John sees Jesus standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And we know from verse 20 that these seven golden lampstands are seven churches. These are the churches. So the first thing we see before we go into the description of Christ, we see Jesus in the midst of His people. We see Jesus in the midst of His churches. It's not the candlesticks of the churches that gets John's attention, but it's Jesus who's in the midst of them. And we would do well to follow John's example. It is not the churches that should grab our attention and their ability to entertain us. It is the Jesus who is proclaimed in those churches who should grab our attention. All around, John is seeing that the churches are mocked. All around, John sees the churches um, are being imprisoned and persecuted. And in the midst of those mocked 
persecuted churches is the risen Lord who was also mocked and persecuted and put to death. So John sees the destination of the Lord, and so I believe he sees the destination of those churches. Jesus is in the middle of his church. He's in the midst of his church. Which, by the way, he should have been downstairs for our worship study today. Because we finally talked about the Lord being in the midst of his people. The tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle located? That's the other thing. Right in the middle, all the people were camped around him. Where was the Lord? The Lord was in the midst of his people. And when they got up and they marched, guess what? They marched in unison and the Lord was in the midst of his people. And God says you need to keep the camp clean and holy. Why? Because I walk to and fro amongst my people. presence of God amongst his people has not changed. He's still in the middle of his people. He's still amongst his churches, his people. These churches were small little communities in the midst of paganism, but Jesus was his main was the main attraction. Folks, we are just a small little church in the midst of culture and a world that is antagonistic to our message. But I want you to know Jesus is in our midst. And as many places and churches seek, here's the only thing we got. The only thing we got is Jesus. That's the only thing we got. How do we attract people to our church? Well, there are all sorts of attempts out there. In our, in our desire to be relevant, I've seen churches that literally have rodeos in, on stage. The pastor riding the bucking bronco and trying to be I cannot out-entertain the world. This church cannot outdo the world in its production value. We don't have that. There isn't a church in the world that can do that. Because we don't have that. Here's what we have. We have Jesus. That's the only thing we've got. That's the, what we have that separates ourselves from everything else. Oprah can out-give many people. I can't give as much as Oprah does to fund an orphanage. Our churches together do a really, really good job. But let me tell you something. If all of our guys, orphanages, things like that, we're missing the point. Because the one thing we have is we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have. If Jesus is not the center of this church, we've got nothing. Jesus needs to be the center. And as soon as we veer off, and Jesus is no longer in the center, I have a feeling he will say, but I have this against you. And if you don't repent, I will extinguish that lampstand. There is nothing as useless on this earth than a congregation without Jesus. So now, Jesus says, I see this one standing in the middle of the lampstands. And then he begins to describe him. And I'm not going to go into every detail here. But understand this. 
Every one of these things comes straight out of the Old Testament. Every one of these descriptions is an ex- comes, has an allusion or a direct reference right back to something that was told to us in the Old Testament. And so John uses various scriptures to describe what he saw. We're going to see John reference um, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 10, Exodus 28, 4, Exodus 29, 9, Ezekiel 9, 3 through 6, and Isaiah 49, 2. At least he sees Jesus dressed as a priest with a robe that reaches to the end and a sash. Jesus is the one who consecrates His people. He is the perfect high priest, able to stand and represent in God's presence and be able to protect His own. He is the mediator between us and God. We have peace with the Father because Jesus Christ, the high priest, our high priest, gave not a lamb or a bull or a goat, but gave Himself as an offering. And through His blood we have peace with the Father. Jesus is our great high priest. He stands dressed as a priest to protect his own and to intercede on our behalf and to offer himself as a sacrifice for all who desire to have their sin forgiven. Jesus is our great high priest. He is described like the Ancient of Days in Daniel. You would do well to go back and read about the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> because it's very interesting. The Ancient of Days is described in God himself. And now here's Jesus bearing the exact resemblance of God Himself. Jesus is not just a a human being who lived for 30 or so years on this earth and then died an ignoble death and we learned a great lesson. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the second person of the Trinity. Holy and divine and glorious. He has piercing eyes that tell us that there is no injustice that is unseen. Jesus knows everything that has happened in your life. He knows the injustice that has been been committed against you. But let me tell you this, on the other side of that, Jesus knows all your faithful deeds. Jesus knows that which you've done in secret that nobody else knows about. Jesus knows when you've forgiven somebody who's hurt you so badly. And everybody else may think you're bitter, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows when you went into secret to pray and intercede on behalf of your enemy and prayed for their salvation. Jesus knows. Jesus knows when you've done something and the world sees it as selfishness or the world sees it in a way that is, is, is not accurate. Jesus knows. He says, I know your faithfulness. I know exactly what you've done. Jesus knows when we fall short, and Jesus knows when in secret we do the very right thing, and nobody else knows. He says, when you give your alms, give them in secret. And when you fast, do it in secret. And when you pray, go into your closet. Your Heavenly Father will hear you there. Jesus knows your toil. He knows your hardship. He knows how you've been struggling to be faithful. He knows your temptations. And He sees how you wrestle with sin and how you're relying upon Him. He sees all of those things. The world doesn't see it, but Jesus sees it. 
We see that he is utterly pure in his voice like many waters. Jesus speaks with great authority. Are you listening to the booming voice of God? Are you listening to the siren song of the world? Because Jesus speaks loud and bold. His word is a sword. It conquers all who oppose him. His word turns the heart of a king. I pray his word turns our hearts today. This is a symbolic picture of Christ. This is given to us not so that we know what Jesus looks like. This is not a self-portrait. A selfie. Post it on Instagram. This doesn't tell us what he looks like, but it tells us what he is like. It tells us that he is the searcher of hearts, that he is consuming in holiness, that he has infinite wisdom. He is the perfect high priest, the perfect king defending his people, and this is how things really are. When John sees him, he falls at his feet like a dead man. It's always interesting when people, when I hear people talk about seeing a vision of Christ. But let me tell you something. In Scripture, whenever God is revealed, people do not stand up and shout for joy. They fall on their face. And they say, woe is me, I am a dead man. Who am I to stand in the presence of the Holy Lord? Because I've seen His holiness, I've seen His purity, I've seen His power, I've seen His authority, and I see all of that in light of my weakness and sinfulness, and I must fall at His feet like a dead man. All my strength leaves me. Who am I? John is overwhelmed, and strength leaves him, and it... He has whatever he had, it is now replaced by dread. And we see this. Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock just to see the passing glory of the Lord. It's like he needed to be propped up. Because when my passing glory, just my fading glory passes by, even that will consume you. Isaiah saw the Lord of glory veiled in smoke. He didn't even see the full glory of the Lord. And he said, woe is me. I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. How can I look upon such beauty and such glory? Even the angels, the seraphim. What does it say? Two feet they, or two wings they flew. And two wings they covered their their feet, and two wings they covered their eyes. Not even they are going to look on the Lord of glory in His purity and His glory and His power and His pristine preeminence. Peter, upon seeing the great work of Christ has departed from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And Saul, on his way to Damascus, sees a light of Christ and he's knocked on his, on his backside. And he says, Who art thou, O Lord? John falls on his face like a dead man. And dread consumes him. And here now we see the mercy of God, the mercy of our Lord, because he I fell at his feet as a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not fear. 
What great words, folks. What great words. When we humble ourselves in the sight of God and we fall on our face before Him, I tell you right now, we may be in dread, but Jesus, the one, the living one who is dead and who is now alive, says, Do not fear. I am the first and the last. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Basically, I am in control of all things. I am in control of life and death. I am in control of who is condemned and who is pardoned. Do not fear. This is why Jesus tells us, Do not fear the one who can take your life. Fear the one who, after taking your life, can cast your soul into hell. Jesus now said, I'm that one. I'm the one who will judge the living and the dead. And those who are in right relationship with him, like John, will hear the words, Do not fear. I have authority over these things. I give eternal life. I'll shut up the gates of hell so, so that there is no access for you and I will open the gates of heaven and welcome you in. And if you reject me, the opposite. And he says, write these things. And I think John gives kind of the, or Jesus gives the overarching um, outline of this, this letter. Write the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things that are going to take place after these things. And then he reveals a mystery. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven angels, I'm sorry, the, in my right hand and the seven lampstands, the seven stars are seven angels, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. been a lot of uh, thoughts regarding who these seven angels are or who these angels are. Some people would say um, that they're pastors of the churches since the uh, letters are written to the angel of the church at such and such. Um, so some people said, well, maybe it's the bishop of those churches or the, the pastor of that church or the, that church. And those are all really interesting. You never see the idea of angels having anything to do with being a pastor or a bishop. These are angelic beings. angelic beings who represent the churches and the seven lampstands of seven churches. Folks, we are a lampstand called to be lights in this world. It is Jesus who is in our midst and it is from Him whom we get our light. We just reflect His light. He's the one who basically sets us on fire so that we burn brightly. And as soon as we abandon Jesus, we will no longer burn brightly. Here we see Jesus pictured as the glorious and incomparable risen Lord. He is the one who is to be worshipped and heeded and obeyed. It is he who calls us, he who summons us. We are to fall and bow at his feet and take heed to what he says. I'll conclude with this. This book is not the rantings of an old man who's seen too many beatings in his life. This is the authoritative word coming from, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the very essence of God coming down from heaven to reveal the truth, the way things really are. John knew Jesus in his humiliation. Now John knows Jesus in his exaltation. So we have to ask, what is your view of Jesus? 
Is he the exalted Lord or is he something less? Let me tell you, if he is not the exalted Lord of your life, then he is something less. And it is time to fall at his feet and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I need to see you as high and lifted up and glorious and above all things. I want to see you above everything that I love in life. I want everything that I love in life to pale in comparison to you. I want, if if tribulation comes my way, it will pale in comparison with you and if things go well and I am exalted in this life and everything goes well and I have good health and wonderful families and a beautiful home, even that will pale in comparison with my commitment to you. Stand and let's pray. Our Father, you